I'm recording this on a Friday afternoon, and it's only been about 24 hours since I landed back in New York after SIHH. To be honest, my head is still spinning from all the new watches we saw in Geneva, and you can bet we'll have a lot more coverage of the show over the coming weeks. This is going to include conversations with Audemars Piguet CEO Francois-Henri Benamias and IWC CEO Chris Granger that you'll be able to listen to right here. But this week, we have something very special for you, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the SIHH. Gagosian Gallery on West 21st Street in New York just opened the first major exhibition of Mark Newson's work in over a decade. Almost all of the pieces are being shown for the very first time, and the results are staggering. There are these beautiful curved glass chairs made in the Czech Republic. There are these insane, huge cloisonne enamel pieces made in Beijing. It's, it's really incredible. For a design geek like me, it doesn't get much better than this. Mark was kind enough to meet up with us at Gagosian to talk about the show. One thing to note, we are recording this on site, so you're going to hear some things in the background, doors, people talking, and it's all part of the ambiance. Don't worry about it. Mark and I talk about how his career has developed over the last 10 or so years, his 30-plus year history of making timepieces from Icapod to Atmos to Apple, and why he thinks the watch world is more interesting now than ever. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverin, and this is Hodinky Radio. This week's episode is brought to you by Bohm and Mercier. Stay tuned later in the show for a look at the Clifton Bomatic Cosk, a high-tech chronometer that offers phenomenal value for money. You can also learn more at bohmatmercier.com. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Mark. It's good to uh, good to see you and uh, to be here at Gagosian. Thank you very much for coming. Last night, your uh, your big show opened ten years ten years in the making. Can you uh, how does how does it feel to finally have it out there, have all the pieces out there in the world? Um, well, it's a relief for a start. Uh, a lot of the things in the um, in the show, uh, as you alluded to, took a long time to to make, um, and uh, you know many of the pieces were extremely sort of prone to to failure. A lot of sort of alchemy, you know, a lot of. <laughs> difficult mediums like glass and uh, enamel things that are hard to predict so um huge huge failure rate and uh you know quite nerve-wracking and when a show is is 10 years in the making and, and most of these pieces in fact almost all of them have been shown for the first time right uh absolutely yeah so when something's that long in the making and it's it's you know you have a diversity of pieces how do you think about putting that together over over 10 years of work it's i would imagine not something where you can just sit down and say okay here are the you know 15 things we're going to do and we'll roadmap it and here's here's what it's going to look like it's uh it's a kind of combination of of on one hand wanting to be you know somewhat organic and 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 you know doing letting the uh, you know letting the 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 sort of the subject evolve uh, but of course, one needs a degree of structure. So you know, you, you have to kind of identify, um, you know, ways of working or, or, or techniques or processes that, that you want to exploit. Um, but I've always got a kind of a, a, you know a, a long repertoire of, of, of technical things that I've I've wanted to do over the years. So I'm sort of like it's a, kind of like a bucket list of. <laughs> Of of, uh, of technical challenges, um, but that was that was decided upon, uh, you know, years ago really, because uh, a lot of these pieces took you know literally years to make because we didn't just make the pieces we had to kind of build the factories as well, 
um, you know, or at least sort of reinvigorate the, the factories. Can, can you walk us through a couple of the pieces? I mean, obviously this is an, an audio medium that's hard, but we'll, um, we'll have some photos on the website and we'll link up to them in the, in the notes for the show. Um, but if you can maybe walk us through a couple, a couple of the pieces in the show that you think kind of exemplify that. I suppose uh, I would immediately think about the, the cloisonne pieces. Um, I mean, there are really three different, you know, kind of bodies of work, I guess. But the cloisonne springs to mind immediately because it's a, it's quite specific. It's very um, uh, particular. Uh, it can only be done in a particular place certainly things on that scale um, and, and shapes on that scale, I don't believe have ever been done. You know, typically closing a shapes are far more regular round, for example. Um, yeah. So the closing a was really, really uh, something that, that, that uh, uh, was quite, you know, challenging and quite, quite sort of specific, something that I'd been interested in for, for, for many years. In fact, since I studied as a jeweler, um, and uh, something that I'd always wanted to do, but just never really had the kind of wherewithal to be able to, to, to figure it out how to do it or where to do it. And these closing aid pieces are, are huge. I mean, these aren't little tabletop objects. These are, these are chairs and, and lounges, right? Yeah, these are, these are giant, uh, giant objects for, for a closing aid piece. I mean, and that's really, I suppose, what, um, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the things that I, I end up doing is kind of, it's all about sort of recontextualizing things, you know, taking a, taking a technique or a process which uh, perhaps has existed for, for, for centuries um, and, and giving it a new, um, you know, a new, a new place. Um, and it was certainly the case with, with, with the Closinet. Um, You know, I'd, I'd certainly, you know, challenge anyone to try and, you know, do anything that big. Um, and, and what's also interesting and exciting about it is that they're all very sort of geographically specific. The glass pieces were made in the Czech Republic, which is the only place you can do that kind of stuff. The cloisonne were made in Beijing, which is the only place that, that you know, that, that it's, you know, that's the sort of center of excellence for, for cloisonne. Um, so it's kind of curious that you end up sort of having to go to certain parts of the world to do certain things. Do, do you find that as you're doing that kind of travel that, the influence that you're you're originally looking for on on one piece kind of rubs off on another. That you're going to Beijing to work on these closing pieces, and then you end up, you know, in the Czech Republic working on these other pieces, and kind of the influence kind of creeps between between projects. Absolutely, it's 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 unavoidable, and it's one of the great um, it's one of the one of the exciting things, and it's one of the things that that keeps me motivated. Really, is this sort of cross pollination of ideas. And you never really know how one thing's going to affect the next, but it's absolutely a certainty that it will in some small way. I mean, even you know, for for the industrial projects that I'm doing, you know, the the sneakers that I designed for Nike, uh, you know, massively, massively influence the way I design luggage for Louis Vuitton, for example. You know, because it occurred to me at some point that actually these things share a lot in common from a technical perspective, but also from a functional perspective. You know, they're both constantly in contact with the ground. You know, they're being beaten constantly on on the road. Um, you know, and and it's it's not immediately that you know that's all, that wouldn't be immediately evident, but you you kind of discover these things, and um, you know, it uh, it it certainly, I think it certainly 
helps. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you know the the sneakers or or the luggage being being beaten and kind of having to endure that. There's something interesting I think about some of the work here in that it's it feels very precious on on one hand it's either enamel or glass, um, but at the same time they're they're things that you're in constant interaction with. They're they're pieces of furniture or even the the surfboard, the aluminum surfboard. Um, how do you, how do you navigate that? that sense of tension between preciousness and, and I guess either utility or um, durability on the, on the other hand? Well, I think that's potentially the, um, that, that's potentially the sort of the magic that one can evoke, you know, if you, if you're able to kind of balance that correctly. And it's very hard to know how to do that. In fact, I don't think I do it consciously. It's just one of, it's one of those things that happens, but, but as I sort of mentioned before, it's, um, the, the idea of sort of recontextualizing things, taking something out of its normal habitat and, and, and sort of representing it either in an art gallery or, um, you know, or taking some, something from a sort of a far-flung um, geographical destination. Uh, you know, uh, that's, that's what kind of makes this stuff exciting. I mean, we all talk about originality and concepts of originality. What does it mean to be original? And I, I believe that... Um, you know, originality really is more about the idea of, of combining different things. You know, all of this stuff exists and has always existed. But but what what makes things what makes this original is is the fact that, um, you know, you're doing it in a different in a different place in a different time in a different way, for a different audience. Yeah, I I love the the thing you say said about whether it's in an art gallery or or somewhere else. I mean, your products can be encountered in a wide variety of places, whether it's you know, a, a physical space where your work is the space, something like the the Qantas Lounge or something like that, or uh, Casa Libre, one of those places, um, or it's a commercial product that's available in a retail store or something in an art gallery. Does that influence from from the beginning how you're making something and how you're conceptualizing something, where it's going to be encountered? It, it really works both ways. You know, I can either be sort of inspired, for want of a better word, um, by the process or by the by the, the the technique or i can be inspired by the the brief whatever that you know may be i mean what's interesting about doing something in in a, in a sort of a gallery context is that you know i'm i'm there is no client so to speak you know in 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 a conventional sense you know you're really completely free to to do um what you want how you want which in many ways makes it more complex you know, it's 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 far easier to sort of work within boundaries that have been dictated, and you have a very specific problem to solve. And in a context like this, there there are really no problems to solve. It's 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 all about um, you know it's wide open. Um, but at the same time, that's that's uh, massively liberating. Yeah, I was I was flipping back through the catalog from the two thousand seven and two thousand eight shows. Um, and you know, there's something that struck me as as a contrast between those shows and this show, is is your choice of materials um, and and kind of processes. You know, those materials. It was a lot of metal. It was a lot of marble, uh, micarta. It was it was mm. heavy, dense things with kind of forms pulled out of them. Um, whereas here, it seems everything is a lot lighter, a lot uh, a lot more delicate. There's a lot more color. What has changed in ten years that this was what you wanted to be doing now, as opposed to what you were doing then? Well, well, as I said before, it's a little bit like a kind of bucket list of things. You know, I'd always been interested in doing these kinds of things, but glass was 
you know, as an example, glass was always a material that I'd been interested in using. Uh, and I'd always been frustrated, as, as I think many designers are, about how um, craftspeople or, or artists use glass, not, not in a particularly nice way, in my opinion. You know, it's always one of those, you know, you know it's always dealt with in a very heavy-handed and sort of crafty kind of way. Um, <laughs> but I've always thought that, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful material and there's got to be a way to, to do something really challenging and really interesting with it. And, and there are certainly many historical sort of precedents, you know, Marina Technica, which is this crazy process that comes from Venice uh, or is, is Venetian. Um, but it's just about thinking, you know, how, you know, how can you, you know, what, how can you re reinvents almost too too presumptuous a way of describing it but but how do you kind of re you know reinterpret those techniques and um you know i'm i'm simply thankful that that actually these 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 uh these individuals still exist in the world and it's just a bit like the sword that um uh you know i did with this uh japanese national living treasure I mean, these resources um, may in all likelihood exist for another generation. Um, so it's an interesting moment in, 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 in history. The pieces that I did in the Czech Republic, I mean, those, that is the only place you can cast glass on that scale. Um, but, but I can't imagine that's going to exist for more than another 10 or 20 years. You know, there's just really simply not not much of a demand for that kind of skill. And, and cloisonne, in fact, I mean, cloisonne is is. Uh, I mean, those. I guess the fact that you know these things are incredibly anachronistic in in many ways, really. Um, and even though you know Beijing is the kind of world, you know, it's the only place they can do these things. Uh, we still had to pull together a team of of people. And you know, sort of reappropriate the, the the factory, you know, because they didn't have an oven that was big enough. The guys that that knew how to do it were all very old, and um, you know, there's simply no demand. Yeah, I mean, how how much would you say of what what any one of these piece, given pieces is is um, sort of idea versus problem solving and and sort of technical troubleshooting? I mean, once you have the idea and you've, you've conceptualized it and you figured out that it is in fact theoretically possible. How much of the work then is finding the right people and sort of troubleshooting until you get something that's, that's a usable, workable product? In a practical sense, it's, it's, you know, it's over 90% of the work really, you know, coming up with the concept is relatively, you know, uh, practically is relatively easy, you know, intellectually, of course, it's, that's a whole other, um, that's a whole other thing, but in a, in a practical sense, it it really is all about that problem solving exercise, you know, that troubleshooting thing, and 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 experimenting and experimenting and trying and trying and trying, and you know, those pieces out there. I mean, for for every one of those glass chairs that's there, there, you know, five are in the in the trash can. I mean, you know, that 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 chair, um, for example, is cast. It's it's such a large casting that it uh, it sits in a in an, in the oven for almost six months so three of those months um are needed for the oven to 
slowly rise to the the, the right temperature so the glass the glass it's sort of like a gravel sort of melts and then another three months for it to cool down because it has to cool down at a fraction of a degree every day uh, and it could be something as inane as a you know the, a power cut in the village and you know the whole thing's ruined you know because you know the ovens are powered by electricity so uh, which happened a few times um, and then you know after six months you kind of crack open this mold this sacrificial plaster mold and and it's completely cracked inside and you just don't know what's going to happen um, it's truly sort of a dark art but you know it's it's it, you know gradually you you figure out why you know why it failed and you know you do it again and you know you, you kind of eventually get there but it's massively frustrating and I think with these pieces more than anything else that I've done uh, there's that uh, you know it's it's more than 50% of, of is in the lap of the gods it, it must require after you put all of this effort into kind of you know eliminating as many variables as, as possible it must require putting yourself in a very particular sort of headspace to be able to like hand that control over and just say like okay I I can't do any more to control this. I just kind of have to let let it be or not be. Yeah. Well, it certainly helps, absolutely. And it certainly helps, you know, when these things are taking place in either Beijing or in, you know, deepest, darkest Bohemia, you know, in the, in the Czech Republic. So you're not there. So you're not, you're not exactly, you know, you're living it in one sense. But, um, you know, the scale is, is very different. You know, you're talking months and not, and not weeks or days. There's nothing immediate about it, and, and you know there's there's a degree of patience that you have to sort of come to grips with, which is why it, you know I spent kind of the better part of five or six years working on this because it just took so long, and there are still pieces that are you know that we couldn't prepare in time for the exhibition that we're working on trying to understand why they're not why they're failing you know why they're not working. And and so of the pieces here, were most of these pieces conceived originally? to be shown together as a part of this exhibition or over over time do they kind of develop into this thing sort of sort of organically for the most part they were conceived as a as a kind of body of work especially the glass and the enamel pieces because of course you know enamel is glass and uh, you know this idea that these things are coming out of an oven you know the glass pieces come out of an oven the enamel comes out of an oven so there's this kind of massive you, you know there's a there's a there's a sort of consistency within those works the sword was a was a was a very different thing and that happened for a completely different reason um but the timing sort of happened to have happened to kind of play in our favor and 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 it was ready um so and the surfboard was you know sort of a uh, um something that I wanted to do because I'd done in the last exhibition and I thought why not do it again and the, you know the the first surfboard that I did for Garrett was was kind of at a moment in his career when he was um you know in the ascendance and now he's sort of close to retirement you know he holds the world re world record for the biggest wave surfed and um uh you know that'll probably be the last one then so as is the case with the sword you know the that that sword maker will never make any more swords you know he's I think he's 85 years old so when when you collaborate with with a brand like Nike or Louis Vuitton, kind of the the terms of that collaboration are are obvious. Um, 
how is it different when you're collaborating with either uh, an artisan to make the sword say or collaborating with an, an athlete to with the surfboard yeah well there's got to be a kind of a reason i suppose um and and the reason that i worked on the sword was was uh, was twofold one that i had a a sort of a you know a, a, an absolute interest in 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 these things you know historically i am obsessed with sort of metallurgy and um with steel with blades and the whole you know well uh, just the, the you know the skill that's involved in doing that um but the second reason was that uh, after uh the a, a lot of those craftspeople in japan well in this particular person in particular uh, in you know he uh, he comes from a, a prefecture in north of Tokyo called Tohoku, and that was um, that that was the area that was pretty much entirely wiped out by the tsunami. So there was uh, I was sort of approached indirectly through the Japanese government, who set up a scheme for these craftspeople who had had their livelihoods effectively, um, you know, pretty much wiped out. Actually, and a lot were were killed. Um, and and, and the, the scheme was to pair those traditional craftspeople with either with with, with contemporary Japanese designers, uh, and and in some cases foreign designers like like myself. I, in fact, I don't know of any other foreign designers that were. So anyway, I got to meet this 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 guy, and that that's how that project came about. Um, because I don't know how else it would have you know it would have happened. I mean. You, you, it's a, it's such a sort of a weird esoteric world that you know I, I don't I, that they simply wouldn't be interested in working with someone. <laughs> well, what, one thing I want to make sure we we do get a chance to talk about, aside from from the exhibition, is is your history making timekeepers. So um, you you mentioned it already, but you trained as a jeweler originally, right? I did. Absolutely, um, and and silversmith, yeah. But I confess, I never really had any intention of sort of practicing as a, as a jeweler. What what interested me about jewelry um, uh, and silversmithing was the the fact that it gave um, you know provided you with a very unique and very specific set of skills, which to this day I I, I constantly sort of draw upon. You know, so when it, if if ever any young designer asks me, you know, for you know, what's what what would your advice be? You know, it would be um, go and study how to make, learn how to make jewelry. You know, because it um, it really teaches you a sort of a unique set of skills, and it and it and it it familiarizes you with scale and the importance of scale, which I think is an you know extremely important thing to kind of understand as as a designer. Most I think you know architects should go and do that because they're are there, often are there spatially any, challenged. Are there <laughs> are there any architects who you you know have done that, or who you think, despite not having formal training in in jewelry, you think kind of uh, have that same sensibility? Uh, contemporary architects, I don't, I can't really think of anybody, but there are people like Carlos Scarpa that spring to mind, um, and, and I think you know. Uh, maybe as well. There's one or two Swedish architects um, 
Gunnar Asplund and uh, oh God, what the other guy's name? And, my, and another wonderful Swedish architect. Anyway, that, that were really obsessed with you know, and there are many, there are many, you know, Gaudi. Um, but in but in a contemporary sense, I'm not. I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head because you know the the problem with architecture right now is you know it's about it's uh it's about sort of prefabrication and uh you know the, you know detail simply isn't isn't that you know or craft isn't that isn't that integral to the way things are built is that something you'd like to see some kind of return to or do you think it's just sort of the natural progression I, of things i think it's the natural progression of things it's just it's just not economic Mm. Um, you know, and even in China, it's not econo economic. You know, everyone, everybody has this impression that things are relatively uh, inexpensive, and, and you know, the fact is that China is is very, very is a very expensive place to make things now. You know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's 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 almost like uh, you know making making it in Europe. So you you trained as a jeweler, and then you pretty early on designed a watch by yourself before Icapod, right? You designed the the Pod watch. Yeah. And that was 1986, I think. Yeah, I think the very, very well. In fact, I'd been I, I I attempted to make a watch when I was about 12 years old. I've still got it. It was a sort of a plexiglass case, and you know, I'd sort of my uncle had given me a watch not long after I'd learned how to tell the time, and uh, I I pulled it apart. You know, as soon as I got it, you know, he was sort of devastated because I'd kind of ripped it to pieces and tried to reassemble it in a in a case that I that I had made but when I was doing jewelry I I made a series of watches you know I was always really fascinated by by watches um and and I was never particularly interested in in the concept of timekeeping I was really more interested in in uh, the fact that you know watches were these sort of mini these little universes you know inside a uh, an enclosure and and the fact that they they really uh that they kind of seamlessly bridged the that 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 you know the boundaries of scale you know i love things that uh defy scale you know whether it be a watch or whether it be a a kind of an oil tanker you know i mean the, the, the these sorts of scaleless objects really i mean um you know we know how big a watch is because because of convention but 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 in fact, you know, if you if you landed here from kind of outer space, I mean, it, you know, it could be the size of a car. Um, but yet, the, the and you could say that for anything except for the fact that you know there, there's a level of precision that 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 exists, and uh, and and that sort of that, you know that kind of extraordinary sort of technical rigorousness that that exists in 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 that industry um, or that craft. Really, and and your watches have always played with scale from the early days, uh, even in the you know early 1990s with the the early iPod watches, uh, they were much larger and really ahead of of that curve. I mean, we didn't see watches get into the 40, 44, 46 millimeter range commercially until I don't know maybe 15 years ago now. But you know, yeah. you, were, you were probably a good 10 yeah, to 15 was, years ahead yeah, of that you, curve. You bet. And the, and the very first one, the very first watch that I not the very first it was like the second or third actually was this thing called the pod watch and it was about it was about 60 millimeters in diameter um it had this huge rubber band which is in fact to this day remains reminiscent of the of the apple bracelet um 
uh, and it was designed to be worn on the top of clothing. You know, it was this sort of slightly kind of wacky idea that I had, but it didn't have hands. It had these sort of these rotating discs, which um, which admittedly had been done. You know, companies like Longines had had had, had, had done and and Jeje had done it with memo boxes and things. Um, but I, you know, I thought it would be fun to kind of try and, but you know, I was, I was making those, you know, I was machining the parts and trying to get them to, you know, work, trying to get them to attach the, you know, this disc to the kind of cannon pinion on the movement and, um, you know, was, you know, trying to kind of learn about, uh, you know, the tolerances involved in making, you know, a press fit work at that scale. And how did that then, you know, you went from doing it kind of all by yourself, like trying to do this by hand, to then founding a, wa a watch company that was producing things at relative scale, right? And how did that, how did that evolution go? And what kind of new challenges did that, did that present? Well, uh, you know, starting to make watches on, on, a, on, on scale, because I would never say on mass, <laughs> we never made that many of them really, but, uh, you know, it happened completely and utterly by accident, but it, but it, it got to a point that, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it seemed to make sense to, to make production runs of, of things. Um, and uh, it was a really odd sort of serendipitous, you know, moment. Uh, and I, I met a fellow in Switzerland who happened to be a furniture dealer actually, but 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 was also Swiss and had some you know knowledge of of, of the industry. And the industry in the mid eighties and, and and sort of early nineties was was not the way it is now. You know, a lot of these factories still existed, like a lot of independent factories still existed, and it was relatively easy to go and make a hundred watches, uh, mechanical watches, because uh, and you were still able to buy. Uh, lovely movements, you know, that were still produced by independent manufacturers. Um, so, but, it, but it, it, it really was an accident, in fact. You know, I never had any intentions of having a company that, that manufactured watches. And, and as, it, as, it, as it transpired, uh, you know, the company didn't, didn't ever really do particularly well because we just were not equipped to run a business, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> And now I'll look at this week's sponsor. Last year, Moment Mercier introduced the Clifton Bomatic. It's a collection of watches inspired by mid-century aesthetics and powered by a new class of movements. The star of the collection is the Clifton Bomatic Cosque. It's a time and date watch that has a stainless steel case, a slick white dial with a vintage-inspired crosshair, and sharp-looking hands and hour markers. Inside is a new in-house movement that boasts a five-day power reserve and a silicon balance spring. This results in a watch that looks great and carries a cost chronometer certification too. The best part, you can get all of this for a very competitive price. Last year, Jack did a week on the wrist review of the Clifton Bomatic Cosk, and you should definitely check that out. You can also learn more about this watch and the entire Bomatic collection by visiting bomatmercier.com. All right, let's get back to the show. What was the reception like? not from consumers, but from the industry in those in those early days. I mean, if, if we think about what 
the Swiss watch industry looked like in the you know early to mid nineties, it was it was still pretty conservative. There was nobody like Erverk and MBNF and these these kind of people doing less traditional looking things. Um, yeah, there was no one. I, I don't you know I really don't remember. And I'm struggling to think of who who was doing interesting things. So when you showed up and said, I want to make this, you know, it's, it's this chronograph, it's 46 millimeters, it's curved on both sides, there's this tiny window set into the back, it's bright colors, I'm doing this unique dial finish. Um, what, what was the response like? I think, uh, you know, on one hand, the response was, uh, you know, there was kind of mild, mild interest, complete sort of incomprehension, because no one really you know, no one thought that it was a particularly good idea. That rubber bracelet, um, you know, no one could get their head around, you know. I mean, there was like, you know, why... Anyway, it's gone on to become the most mass-manufactured rubber bracelet of all time, but <laughs> <laughs> in the history of watches, but um, which is, which is you know, very gratifying for me. <laughs> but, you know, putting the, the little window on the back of the watch, you know, th those things were not that common you know and the fact that it was sort of eccentric and you know everything was flush and you know the section was elliptical you know just setting the glass in so it was completely flush i mean you know i remember watch watch crystals were you know glasses were were, were never flush i mean they were always proud of the case and they um you know I, I i could never really understand why no one um at the same time there were incredible things being done you know i can remember concord came out with that 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 the very very first watch that was less than a millimeter thick oh yeah yeah the um the delirium yeah yeah, yeah the concord yeah. delirium and, you know and, and so i was absolutely i was deeply kind of obsessed with these things you know I, I had scrapbooks of of this shit you know like patek philippe watches and you know I mean, little thing. I mean, you mentioned things like having the glass sit flush and having the radiusing be be just right. I mean, the, these are the things that it it still always shocks me a little bit when you look at at watches versus some other products that the things which are being which are having great attention paid to them aren't always the same. It seems like each each industry has its own little little obsessions. Do you find that coming to making watches from other another place? gave you the opportunity to kind of pick different things to care about in, in making a watch? Absolutely. Yeah, it's always helpful to come with a new sort of set of eyes and having not trained as a watchmaker or having not come from the industry almost certainly gave me, and not least the fact that I was doing all of this in Australia, right? So I'm, I'm kind of, I wasn't even in Europe. I was literally, there. you know, there's absolutely zero history of watchmaking in Australia. Although... It had to be said that my I, I shared uh, a workshop with a with a German guy that was an immigrant to Australia who was the only authorized um, the only authorized repairer of Atmos clocks in in the Southern Hemisphere. Right, so like it was utterly bizarre that. And when know, would this have been? This was in uh, like 1984, 85. Wow. So I don't know how I kind of ended up sharing a workshop with this guy. And there, there, there certainly weren't many Atmos clocks that needed repairing, but when they did, they came to his place. So he had all of this watchmaking equipment. You know, he had watchmaking lathes and he, he was, uh, as I said, he was German, but he had a, you know, he was, he was a watchmaker. Do, do you think 
that kind of planted the seed there that eventually ended up being your work with with JLC and and to work on on a number of Atmos clocks or was it is it total coincidence that those two things kind of in hindsight match up nicely yeah I think it was more more coincidence really I mean I've always loved Atmos clocks and I'm I'm not sure you know I knew what Atmos clocks were before I met him um and it was a it was a fantastic thing that you know I got to meet him and understood how they worked but but I knew what they were you know I was obsessively kind of researching all this stuff um and I'd always loved Atmos clocks you know um you know and the fact that I ended up working with them designing clocks for them was um was uh, uh you know it was a I, I suppose it was just a fantastic coincidence really i didn't seek them out they they they, they oh, came okay. to me okay and when did when did that collaboration start uh i think the first atmos uh well we started i i, I want to say was probably like 2005 or four you know and those things always have such a long gestation you know because it's always it's always the brainchild of of an individual in a company you know so i've got this really great idea why don't we talk to this guy but it's only ever one person and then they have to kind of go and sell it to the (laughs) the ceo yeah and that may or may not work, but you know, so you know, someone has to kind of plant the seed of the idea. And in most in most cases, uh, you know, by the time you end up finishing the project, that person's long gone. Right. So, but I did the one, and then and then you know, it was a relative success. Uh, and and so you know, then they wanted to do, they wanted to do another one. One of the things that that I've always thought about the Atmos and with some of the Agapod pieces, um, the Solaris maybe in in particular. Is there these these objects that, in a certain way, they're immediately legible? Like you see it and you know it's it's a clock or it's a watch, but they also kind of challenge your idea of what that thing is. Like you look at an Atmos clock and it's it's obviously a clock, but you're not quite sure what's going on. And yeah. the same with the Solaris; it's it's a watch, but it has another side. And there's what's what's yeah. happening here. Yeah. Um, is is that something you're doing consciously, or is this something that you think is is a result of a different a different process that's kind of going on for you? I think it's a, it's all of those it's all of those things. But 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 you know I do love the, in a, if you'll excuse the pun that you know the kind of timelessness yeah. of those of an object like the Atmos, in in the same way that the Clepsydra. I mean that's that's all together. You know that takes it to a kind of a whole other level, but. You know that mechanism has existed for almost a hundred years, but but um, and 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 can cannot be really improved. Um, you know, and there's a sort of a weird alchemy. You know, it's it's slightly mysterious. It's a bit, it's a bit, it's it's very sort of Jules Verne. Mm. Um, and I was a huge fan of Jules Verne when I was a kid. You know, growing up, and um, yeah, there was always something sort of slightly magical about those about those objects but but magical in a mechanical way not in a you know it was you could kind of see it all happening in front of you it wasn't particularly mysterious it was just you know curious and with something like the atmos like you you i would imagine when you approach this project you you have some ideas, but then there's this entire set of of technical requirements, right? And this is with with any project, but 
with the Atmos, I think it's interesting because it's transparent. You can you can see those technical constraints as the the end user. Um, how how does that affect your design process when you say I have this idea and then you get this sort of long long list of things that it it can do it can't do and you have to kind of work literally physically around this mechanism. Yeah, but well that 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 does you know that is what that is what being a designer is about at the end of the day. It's kind of working within the parameters that are imposed upon you. And on one hand, uh, you know. You know, one could imagine that it's quite restrictive, but on the other hand, uh, or prescriptive, but but it it does, uh, you know, it gives a lot of, it gives guidance. You know, it's 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 nice to be able to kind of work within those parameters and those 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 kinds of boundaries. So, um, and 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 one always, of course, has to be mindful of what the object is and and that you don't lose sight of 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 the fact that first and foremost it must remain an atmos you know it's it's not about me it's about that thing you know you've got to be able to sort of squint and 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 you know if if it's at the other end of the room it needs to be uh immediately recognizable as an atmos in the same way that you know, when I designed a Riva boat, for example, you know, and it's sort of more, you know, two hundred yards away, and you kind of, you know, the first thing that you, the first impression you have is that it's a Riva. You know, then you know that's that's the most, you know, that that's 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 the sort of departure point. Um, and and the case that is certainly. You know that that's the case with 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 an atmos. You know it's such a specific thing. Having said all of that, there there are still lots of lots of fun things that that you could do that haven't been done, um, because it is it is fundamentally such a kind of weirdly utilitarian you know um, object. Is is that a uh, collaboration that you think we're going to see more of in the future, or is that kind of on on hold for for now? Honestly. Uh, if you'd have asked me that after I did the first one, I would have maybe given you the same answer, and is that you know I I just I don't know really, but you know I've done three now and they keep coming back, so <laughs> so I'd like to think yes, you know I mean it's a wonderful company, um, and I remember when I started working with Atmos, Atmos still was uh, a small factory down the road, you know it wasn't part of uh, of course it was part of the group, but it wasn't. It was this. It was its dusty little kind of workshop, you know, full of Atmos clocks, and and it was really a forgotten. You know, it was it was literally like the land where time stood still. Yeah, well, I think it's it's probably in no small part due to to you working with them and them kind of making a push back into this being a meaningful part of of what they're doing. That they now have this big beautiful uh, workshop that's in the main manufacturer and. I think it's it's done a lot, kind of, for the the visibility of that of that product. Uh, yeah, absolutely, I think so. And and what 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 they always knew, but what what I don't think they were ever able really to to, or what what they what they started to lose was the fact that these were such iconic iconic, you know, objects, and 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 the fact that they were truly sort of timeless. Yeah things you know you, you you could have one of these objects 
um, forever. And it occurred to me that actually, you know, they're, made, they're perhaps amongst the most sustainable things on earth. You buy one of these things and you have it for like, you know, generations. Yeah. It's like the best investment you'll ever, <laughs> right. you'll ever, you'll ever have. You know, they're, they're wonderful. I mean, it's never going to be landfill. Um, you know, there's nothing disposable about those things. And I think they've understood that, you know, they've kind of embraced that, that uh, you know, those, those uh, or embraced or exploiting those, those realities. Yeah. I mean, another, another one of the timekeepers that you're, you're sort of known for outside of watches is, is the hourglass. Uh, and one of the things I've always found interesting is that I know you sort of transitioned out of IcoPod and the, the hourglass was originally conceived as an, an IcoPod product and yeah. was sold as an IcoPod product. Um, and then you transitioned out and they sort of disappeared for a little while. Um, and then I remember I was, I was at Salon QP a number of years ago in London and saw them there. And was like, wait, I thought these, I thought these disappeared. I thought this was gone. Yeah. Um, but you actually ended up founding a, a new company, uh, kind of under your own banner, to to bring this back. Yeah. And I wonder what what is it about this product that was special enough to you that you thought you wanted to keep making it and improving on it and, and bring this back into the world? Well, you know, it started with the Atmos, and uh, you know, which which it has to be said, it's quite a sort of an esoteric timepiece it's not for everyone but it, you know it's it's it, it's kind of at the the outer limits of you know of of, of timekeeping instruments um and i just kind of kept going really and i you know i thought wow i i i'm really interested in in the concept of time um uh and and the sort of the kind of mesmeric qualities of certain timekeeping devices like the atmos you know it's a it's a kind of meditational thing and it's not actually it's really not you know it's it's more about um well it's 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 much less about keeping time uh than it is about this you know the concept of it just perpetually going and uh I, I, I wanted to sort of take that to the next the level. And of course, you know, our glasses are, you know, probably the most, it, it is like the most generic timekeeping thing. And it's not really about time in a, in a, in a, in a, in a specific way. It's more in a, a sort of an esoteric way. And it's the same with this, you know, I, I just, it's a bit like, um, you know, staring at waves or, or, or looking into a fireplace and watching, watching flames. I mean, you know, they, they kind of, um, I, I find these objects to be, uh, um, you know, sort of inspiring or, you know, relaxing or, you know, sort of life affirming objects really. Yeah. I mean, this is the second time you've, you've gestured towards something that's, that's sitting right next to us here that people, have not seen yet. Um, we've we've seen it before. Um, folks listening will be seeing it soon on on Hodinkee um, and and elsewhere. But I wonder if maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a teaser as to what what this thing is that's uh, sitting on the the beautiful white plinth next to us and uh, yeah, what people can expect. Well, what what this thing is is a is a clepsydra, which is obviously a Greek word that, that describes one of the earliest kind of timekeeping machines. Um, and you know, on one level, it's incredibly simple. 
you know, you, you can see exactly what, when it starts working, what it does and what it's supposed to do. But it, I must confess, uh, belies the complete and utter complexity. You know, <laughs> you get to thinking, God, you know, how did the ancient Greeks do that? You know, I mean, getting it to work is, is really not that trivial. Um, but again, it's that sort of complete, um, completely sort of anachronistic quality, you know, this sort of juxtaposition of simplicity and complexity. Um, and it's about time, but it's not about time. You know, no one will use this to, to you know, to <laughs> as an alarm clock, you right. know, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, and I think as well, you know, like a lot of certain of these objects that, that they, um, they're they're timely in a in in a sense that you know we live in a sort of such a digitized world that you know having these um, you know fundamentally sort of mechanical things uh, you know uh, are quite reassuring in a way you know I find them sort of oddly um, uh, comforting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I know you've 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 alluded earlier to the fact that you're now you're now working a bit with with apple um and there's there's an apple watch on on your wrist right now how do you see that tension of of a mechanical object versus versus a digital object and how those things fit into our lives now uh well you know it's all relevant um you know the apple watch is an extraordinary thing uh that goes you know, far beyond what a normal watch does. You know, it's really, it's much less of a watch than it is a, you know, a, a, a multifunctional device, you know, medical, you know, for example. Um, but there's a time and a place for all of these things, that, as, as I think Apple have kind of, you know, demonstrated. I mean, everyone was terrified when the, the Apple Watch, I mean, in Switzerland. But, if you know, it transpires that, that, that actually, um, you know, mechanical watches are just as relevant as they always were and you know most people have both um and i guess it's the same with 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 these sorts of more sculptural large-scale objects yeah i i wonder do you have any ambitions to to someday work on on a mechanical watch or a mechanical timekeeper that's sort of restored of, of some kind again absolutely yeah yeah i mean um I would, you know, there's an enormous amount of stuff being done in, in, in that industry, uh, you know, uh, far more than there was when I, as you sort of spoke to earlier, uh, you know, in, in the mid, you know, three decades, two, three decades ago, there are companies doing sort of extraordinary things, even to the point of it being slightly kind of gratuitous actually, you know, in a lot of cases. But um, um, so I don't know, you know, so much has been done. You know, I think, I think, you know, I, I wonder where, you know, how, where, you know, how, how one would try to be relevant. And, and I suppose, in some ways, it's why I, 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 um, I veer more towards designing completely esoteric objects like that clepsydra. <laughs> 
are, are there because any... there's certainly no one else doing that <laughs> no, no um yeah i'm really excited for people to see this it's uh it's definitely unlike any anything else out there but mm. uh our... yeah i mean it's it's about time but it's kind of not about time you know it's right it's, it's as much not about time <laughs> as it is you know are are there any brands i mean you, you you said that there's a lot being done these days that's that's kind of more interesting than what was being done when when you first got into watches um are there any brands or any specific products that you've seen over the last couple of years that that excite you or that you think are particularly interesting for one one reason or another god yeah there are a few and i forget their names um what was that beautiful watch that was designed in it it was it was not dissimilar in section to my um my um hemipode watch it was sort of elliptical in section yet the the dial it was filled with oil and the dial looked what was oh uh resonance yeah 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 resonance. i thought that was a stunning yeah you know and kind of mesmeric thing really that was a magical um to you know that that part of the way it worked you know that 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 was for me as a standout kind of an, an incredible object but i must confess i'm not a massive fan of a lot of the the you know what i would call sort of these kind of crazily sort of gratuitous complications you know i'm not talking about a tourbillon you know that i think is a you know is a a deeply you know significant sort of mechanical thing it's more um yeah, that you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to name names or or, or whatever, but you know, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, if I think, you know, I, I just, I, I keep going back to classic, you know, to 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 movements actually that that really um, excel, you know, that are just, you know, so sort of technically extraordinary, um, and I must, you know, say I, I like, you know. The movements that are produced by, you know, Jaeger are, are pretty, pretty fantastic. Having spent a lot of time in their factory, you know, the old memo boxes and things. I mean, I have quite conventional taste when it comes to watches. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you saw um, that Icopod has been uh, kind of brought God, brought back yes. from the dead. Indeed, um, yes, yes. Can I ask what, what you think about that? And oh. it's been brought back for, for those who don't know with, without you involved. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. No, I had absolutely no involvement or no knowledge even of, of what was happening, a limited knowledge. Um, and and there, are, there are only certain parts of, of, of what we did that are, that are able to be, you know, brought, you know, that, that they could acquire. Um, but, you know, I don't know what their plans are or what their intentions are. Uh, but it's a little bit of a mess, frankly, because the the uh, unfortunately it's a big mess um the, the, the there's a portion of the company which is owned by a chinese you know you know the the brand the logo itself is owned by a chinese entity so i'm not quite sure you know where one could go with that or you know how one could then how could could now turn that into sort of a coherent brand anymore you know to me it's you know it's had a, it, it 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 had its day <laughs> really yeah. um unfortunately so we're we're getting short on time, but the the last thing I wanted to ask you before we get into kind of this little questionnaire we do do at the end. Um, so you last night the show debuts. It's ten years of work. We've we've already talked about this this Clepsydra, which is coming very soon. 
Um, all of this represents again a, a decade plus of of work. What what are you going to be doing next? What are, what is what are next steps for you? Well, yeah, I mean, there's all of that stuff out there in the gallery, and then you know I've got my day job as well. So um, we you know I still have a kind of design consultancy, and I'm doing you know vast amounts of of work in a whole variety of different industries. A lot in the so sort of so-called luxury sector, um, a number of luxury yachts as well which is a weird kind of niche that i've found myself in uh continue to design furniture for companies like null um and uh and all kinds of other things you know i mean you name it uh, so so i'm just going to be doing more of the same really um you know and trying to stay busy and something tells me you won't you won't have a problem staying busy that's yeah not, yeah uh... no that won't be the issue yeah yeah staying <laughs> staying busy will be is is a is a given great well to finish things up uh we have a little questionnaire we ask everybody the same kind of five questions to to close things out so um you can feel free to keep the answer short or you can you can go more in depth if, Thank if you'd you. like so um number one is is and we've talked about this a bit but what's a watch that's caught your eye recently something you saw recently that that grabbed your attention uh well it would probably <laughs> the apple watch of course <laughs> Um, the new version, yeah, that was. Uh, I walked into that one. Um, the um, that that res uh, was it. Res resonance. Resonance. Yeah. Resonance. Resonance. Yeah. yeah. That that I thought was really really was really stunning. Um, and uh, I I just kind of keep coming back to these classics. You know, I love mm. I love the Memo Vox. I think that's one of my all time favorites. Perfect. I designed a Memo Vox for with Johnny actually for the. For the red auction, for the right? red auction, yeah. you know, with this little red yeah, yeah. dot in the middle, and you know, I've got one of those. And, and there's an Atmos from uh, from that sale too, right? Correct. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Those uh, the prices at that sale were amazing. Yeah, they, they were, were uh, incredible. Pe people were yeah. really, really interested. It was mm. great. Um, what's what's the best place you've traveled in the last year? At the risk of sounding a little cliched, but probably japan you know i spent a lot of time there uh but i went through a period of not going that much and and i've recently started you know had the opportunity to go back again um uh yeah i mean constantly fascinated and and i'm constantly invigorated by by traveling around japan and in tokyo much more than say you know china <laughs> <laughs> What's um what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and who gave you that advice? Well, a few things actually. Um knowing when to stop. And I can't remember who gave me that bit of advice, but I've never forgotten that and it's remained in the forefront of my mind. Um and uh, a bit of advice that my grandfather gave me which was uh, if you want to do something properly do it yourself. <laughs> Perfect. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? Mm. Guilty pleasure. I, I, I would have to say kind of being lazy, you know, not doing anything, being absolutely, um, you know, the, the, having occasionally the luxury to do absolutely nothing. Great. And the last thing, um, 
is we always finish up, we ask for a, a cultural recommendation. So is there something you would recommend that people, when they're done listening here, go take a look at, whether it's a film or a book or a place they should go? There's a fantastic jewelry exhibition at the Met. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I would thoroughly recommend. It's really, great. really great. Yeah, we'll link up to that. I actually went maybe two, three weeks ago yeah. over the holidays. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's really, really good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are so many things, especially here, but that was, you know, that's, that's a good one. Right. And an easy one. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I know cool. you're, you're busy. You have you mm, know, lots no. to attend to and, um, no sweat. No, yeah, the great. show looks fantastic and we'll, we'll link up, uh, here in the show notes so that people can get the details and, uh, highly recommend you come check it out for yourself. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's a pleasure. This week's episode was recorded at the Gagosian Gallery on West 21st Street in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.